0: Let's come before the Lord and ask for his blessing this morning. Thank you, Father. Lord, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus this morning. Lord, we're just totally grateful to you, Lord, for all that you do every single day. Father, the miracles and many things, Father, that escape our notice altogether. But, Father, you're here and you're present and your Holy Spirit is, Father, already working in us and through us and speaking to us concerning issues, Lord, that you want to deal with us about. And our prayer is that. Father, through our time looking in your word today, Lord, you will breathe the breath of life upon us. Open our hearts. Father, help us be receptive to all that you want to do. We love you, and Lord, we thank you, and we ask for your blessing upon ourselves. And Lord, our families, as we approach this week, Lord, make us a blessing to our loved ones, Lord. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 John chapter 1, John's Witness. Have you ever noticed that people seem to have a difficult time coming to terms with who they really are. I mean, not everybody, but in the world, a lot of people. I have kind of this tendency to look at uh, the men of the world like hamsters on a wheel chasing that next thing, you know, the answer to what they've always needed that changes every six months. Um, pierced, tatted, tattooed, printed, bored, quaffed, manicured, it kind of seems to me that people are working so hard to make themselves into something worthwhile that they can't quite see who they're supposed to be to begin with. Maybe they don't really want to see who they are to a being. Can't imagine that there would be anything of value in that person. You know, uh, people see themselves that way. A little liposuction, some Botox, and nip here, tuck there. And what do you get? Good question. They don't want to see it in a dark alley, whatever it is. Um, if they ever come up with personality reassignment surgery, it's going to be very popular. I really think so. People don't like themselves. And they're not just imagining the problem. Unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons for people not to like themselves. Well, you know, I just need to spend a little bit more time developing myself. I need more, a little more time in the gym. I need to get a better game plan for my life. Start therapy. Change my medication. Start yoga. Maybe I need some new accessories for my life, new car, new boyfriend, new girlfriend, one of each. People, people don't like themselves. They really don't know what to do about it. And for us, this shouldn't be a surprise for us. First Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11 says, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which men's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. But The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And there's a reason for this. I want to suggest to you that people, people in the world are basically incapable of real, sincere self-examination of clarity and wisdom and decision-making, real objectivity, ordering their lives in a proper perspective of the world around them. Most importantly, people are fundamentally incapable of knowing who they are and why they are here. You don't know who you are and why you're here. Gracious. It's no wonder that you're not seeking psychiatric medication. These things that are very difficult sometimes even for believers without the benefit of God's presence with us and his spirit at work in our lives, they are impossible. And that's not to say Christians have got it all wired. That's unfortunately not the case. We are full of holes. We've got issues. We've got problems. And we've got bigger problems. But all that said, we do have the truth. And we know that it's true. We have the life. We have the way. And his name is Jesus. And today, as we look at this first chapter... The letter of 1 John, I want to suggest to you that knowing the Lord is the necessary foundation for knowing about yourself and for knowing about the world that you live in. Matthew 633, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And why do I spend so much time telling believers this verse that they've read hundreds of times? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. John's first epistle, the general letter, written sometime to tail end of the first century, one of the last books of the Bible ever written, along with the book of Revelation, the Gospel of John, his other letters. About 60 to 65 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, one of the interesting things about the conditions of our world is how quickly corruption sets in. On things, Whether it's a living organism or the words of truth, they say uh, the lie has gone around the world by the time the truth is just getting out of bed. And in just a few decades since the gospel of Jesus has been introduced to the Gentile world, while its growth and expansion are truly unlike anything that ever has taken place in the history of the world, the lies and distortions around the gospel are just about as amazing. And one of those lies at the time of John being the popular ideas known as Gnosticism, spelled with a G, Gnosticism, which was very popular, especially with people that want to see themselves as being extra spiritual, which for some reason is something that people always want to do. Every time Satan wants to promote some new lie, all he has to do is engineer into it some opportunity to allow people to see themselves as dear, deeply spiritual and then look out, you know, wow, I just learned this new thing about God. It's so awesome. And I am totally spiritual. I am the center of the universe. I always knew it. It's a lot more attractive than when the Bible tells you that you're not very spiritual at all. You know, people begin to leave the church and people that you really not, you're really not very godly either. More people leave the church and, in fact, you're a little bit of a mess, but you are God's mess. A few people come back. Gnosticism covers a lot of ground. Basically, Gnosticism, and there's a whole wide variety of ideas that are incorporated in depending on what flavor you get. But some of the things that John deals with in 1 John have to do with the idea that Jesus was not a real human man. That he was sort of this phantom that came to Earth and floated around, but left footprints underneath, and and then uh, he. It's also combined with the idea that there are two natures inside of you, which there kind of are. You know, it's interesting how all Satan's lies kind of have a foundation in truth somewhere in there. That you have this carnal nature and the spiritual nature, and they both coexist comfortably together. That's the lie part. And they do not. Gnosticism still around today in a lot of different areas. Uh, the Church of Christian Science has all kinds of Gnostic tenets in it. Uh, Theosophy, have you ever heard of that? Also, a lot of the ideas of Gnosticism get airplay in the New Age movement all over the place. The thing that John addresses primarily in the letter here is the truth that Jesus was and is a real human man, that he walked upon the earth, that he purchased us from eternal destruction with his life, that he made a way for us to be with him. And that he is, in fact, the God of the Bible. Those ideas. The letter, probably written from Ephesus, but there are a lot of different opinions. Some people think he wrote it from Jerusalem while he was taking care of Jesus' mom. Some people feel like he wrote it from the island of Patmos. But we don't know. We really don't know. This morning, we're going to look at the first chapter from the perspective of John's witness. John's witness to the word of life in verses 1 and 2. John's witness to joy verses 3 and 4. John's witness from the Lord in verses 5, 6, and 7. And John's witness to men in verses 8, 9, and 10. The Greek word for witness is the word marturas, uh, from which we get our English word martyr. And it's interesting, uh, the association in English is the death of the witness. But not always the case in the Greek language or in the New Testament. Uh, but... John is, in fact, the only one of the twelve that did not die a violent death. Uh, Ten of them dying from persecution. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot dying by his own hand. So the apostle John lived a very long and useful life. And in this letter, is any indication, God used him every single day, whether he knew it or not. John's witness to the word of life in verses one and two. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. In this first part of the letter, pretty evident, that John is not directing his remarks to any particular local church or in any individual he doesn't really start out with an introduction like the apostle Paul does in his letters one reason that it is grouped together with what they call the general epistles James first and second Peter and then second and third John all general epistles in the new testament like a wise man starts at the beginning And throughout the letter, he regularly reminds us that this is not what he's he's sharing. This is not some new thing that which was from the beginning. He references the beginning 12 times in four chapters, making the point that Christ and the Christian faith, not some new scheme, but it is, in fact, the truth that God himself has been consistently communicating from the beginning when people. When people complain to you to stop pushing your ideas about God on them, you want to be considerate, you want to be compassionate, especially over the Thanksgiving dinner table, you know. Sorry, I apologize. But you might mention to them that these are not your ideas. They were here a long time before you got here. You're not responsible for the content of the Bible. You know, different than popular demand, but... uh, you can thank them for the compliment if you like, but help them to understand the things you're sharing, not the ideas of any man, but the truth that comes from God himself. Second Peter 1.16 says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his Majesty, eye witnesses the very same thing John is trying to communicate in verses one, two, and three. And why is it so important that he was an eyewitness? The same reason that the quote-unquote uh, experts on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel and the any other channel that's out there, National Geographic Channel, want you need you to believe that the Bible, the New Testament at least, is a second-century document. They need you to believe that the New Testament was written in the 2nd century. Why? Because then it is no longer the product of eyewitnesses. And that's important. To them. They don't even want to talk about the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit at all. John's point here is pretty clear. What do you think he's trying to tell us? That which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we handled, was manifested, we have seen, was manifested to us. And in verse 3, we've seen and heard ten times in three verses the historical reliability of the witness of Christ. In verse 1, he calls Christ the word of life. Logos zoe. Logos from, from John one one. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was with God, the logos, the Word. Notice, not words of life, not plural. He's speaking specifically of Jesus, the Word of Life. In verse two, the eternal life, Anios Zoe, that which was from the Father, really points us back to the Gospel of John chapter one, verse four. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Sort of like this coming of Jesus was something that made. The life of every human being, completely different forever. Christ is the word of, word of life. The gospel, Christ is the gospel in human form, folks. Christ is the personification of the gospel. No Christ, no gospel. Romans ten seventeen says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And that would be the faith by which we're saved. Therefore, the word of life, real life. Life is, folks, life is about a connection to God. If you're unconnected to God, you have no life. You may be biologically and physiologically alive by some designation, but if you are not connected to God, you have no life. If you're connected to God, you have life. 1 John five twelve says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, when we leave this world, all these facts are going to become painfully evident. Jesus is that eternal life that was with the Father and there is no real life apart from him. In verse 2, he was with the Father and was manifest to us. So, the work of God showing up in the world of men. To what end? What's the purpose? You You know, you think about the nature of God. Read the Bible and you think about what he does and how he does things. And obviously, we don't know much about that. Sometimes I wonder if God can do anything for just one purpose. And or if he could affect any single thing without affecting everything else because everything is so connected in the universe. And the answer to that question is I don't know. I don't know. We know for certain that there are five specific reasons in the book of 1 John laid out for us and the first two one shows up in verse 3, one shows up in verse 4. John's Witness to joy. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Okay. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Isn't that what we as Christians are called to do? to bear witness of the things that we have seen and heard. I don't need to be a walking in Bible encyclopedia. I don't need to be a know-it-all from from the Bible. I don't need to be that. God has not caught. If I needed to be that, I'd probably have, I'd be smarter than I am. I, I don't need to do that. I don't need to explain to other people the things that you've seen. That's not my job as a follower of Christ. As the Lord spoke to the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, he, he recounted it in Acts twenty six sixteen. The Lord said to him, rise, stand on your feet. I've appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. Pretty plain. And this is certainly part of God's calling for your life. Do you ever wonder, God, what did you call me for? That's a good part of it to share what he's shown you and to express the things that he's going to teach you to other people. That doesn't mean you have to do it on national television, but, um, if you know you're going to be on national television, you might want to give it a thought, something you want to take seriously. I want to look at my life day by day as an opportunity to serve the Lord And one of the ways that I do that is by communicating the things God has done and shown me, things he's done in my life. I don't want it to be an awkward thing or an unusual thing. I don't want it to be forced. I don't want to... Have you ever been in a situation where you want to share the gospel with somebody and you get so kind of nervous about it that you make them really nervous as you're trying to talk to them? You know, I don't want that to happen. I want it just to be a simple part of who I am. You know, back in the 70s, and I was messed up. Um, my mom was in the hospital for cancer surgery, and I went to visit her at that time. And as I went to the hospital to visit her, I was blasted out of my mind. And my uncle, who was one of those born-again Christian guys, had a problem with that. He thought I was being disrespectful going to the hospital in that condition. I told him, hey, this is how I go everywhere. You want me to go somewhere? This is how I am. Honest, but stupid. Uh and, you know, guess what? If you invite me to your house for some event or a birthday party today, I'm going to be looking for an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any opportunity, because that's who I am. That's what I do. Better than I used to be? Well, you know, I, life is better than death. I was dead. I, hate, I hated my life. I didn't understand why. Every day of my life was a new form of torture. And I was just trying to medicate myself out of pain. But when you come to Christ, when you surrender your life to his truth, when you hand yourself over, and you've got to do it every day, don't you? When you hand yourself over, take up your cross daily in the Gospel of Luke, when we do the things that God has called us to do, when we are obedient to the Lord's purpose, everybody hates that word, when we are obedient, watch your kids, you know, you need to be obedient. When we're obedient to the Lord's purpose, At work in our lives, there is a result that you may also have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Do you think you know what this word fellowship means? I'm pretty sure you don't. You may know more about it than I do, though. Obedience to Christ results in a connection to Him, something we call fellowship with Him, and fellowship, connection with other people as well. We're connected to Him And the word for fellowship here in verse 3 shows up twice in the one verse, the word koinonia. Uh, We we translate it communion in some places, communion with one another. And what is the result of this communion? Verse 4. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The word for fellowship is very important for us you get the idea, if you, if you look into it a little bit, and like look in a lexicon or a, a Greek-Hebrew Greek commentary, look at some of the words, uh, Robertson's word pictures in the New Testament is really good. You get the impression that they have a lot of trouble trying to squeeze this word down into the English language. Listen how it's translated in the King James Version. It shows up 20 times in the New Testament. Fellowship, communion, communication, distribution, contribution, communicate. All those different ways for this one word. It has to do with what is common to all. This partnership involves a participation as in the blood of Christ. When we take communion together, when we participate in the Lord's table, it's called koinonia. It's what it is. Uh, Cooperation in the work of the gospel. When we serve together, there's a koinonia. Contribution for the needs of other people is koinonia. It's all part of this fellowship. God's purpose, folks... God's purpose for you is not that you would be close to him. God's purpose is not that you would be close to him. God's purpose is that we all should be one with him. And that's different than close. In John chapter 17, three or four times, in John 17, 11, Jesus says, Now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those who you've given me that they may be one as we are. 17, 21, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. Romans 15, 6 says that you may be with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the relationship aspect of this communion. It is a living relationship, a connectedness to the Lord and also to the people, the other people who are connected to him, combined with the actual experience of knowing God Personally, one of the amazing testimonies of God's power is that no person can know him and not be dramatically and fundamentally changed. Second Corinthians 5.17 Our Savior is such a powerful influence that if any person knows him in the truth, he will be utterly changed forever. And the apostle writes again in First John 5 specific reasons, reasons listed in this letter. The first... In verse 3, that which we've seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have koinonia, fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The first purpose that he lists, to connect us to the Father and to the body of the Christian community that God has designed for us. The second reason is in verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. God wants his children to have joy. And not not just any old joy, but a joy that is full. Now, you know, the the life of a believer is a mixed bag of all kinds of fascinating and interesting experiences. Some of them are wonderful and amazing and ecstatic. And some of them are pretty devastating and pretty terrible. And everything else in between. And we are certainly not always happy. And um, if you're always happy, I'd love to talk to you after. But that's not, not the case. Joy, on the other hand, is very different than happiness. Joy has a depth to it that is very different than happiness. Happiness is largely dependent on outward circumstances. You know, you're... You get a new car, you drive down the street, people smile at you and point, and you're happy, you're happy. You park your new car, you come out of the supermarket, somebody keyed the whole door, you're not as happy anymore. You know, it's all your happiness is is you fall on your knees and say, "My God!" you know, right there, unfortunately, it does happen. Joy is not happy on the cer- joy is not dependent on the circumstances. Uh, and we have an indication of that right here. First John asks to the source of joy. He's writing to us about our communion connection with God, our fellowship with him. And it is this connection that gives us the fullness of joy. Your being one with the Lord, being one with him, not close to him, being one with him is the thing that is going to generate and give you perspective of the joy that God wants you to have in your life. This past week, I watched a video of a Christian woman who had recently been imprisoned in Islamic country. And as she shared her situation, she shared that she totally had no expectation of being arrested. And when she was arrested and taken to prison for her faith in Jesus, she was messed up. She was overwhelmed. She was had no answer. She, had, you know, she was without an answer as to why the Lord had allowed this to take place in her life. Not to mention that she was beside herself concern. You know, what's going to become of me? What's going to happen here? Sometime after being taken into custody, she shares that the Lord himself appeared to her. Jesus showed up and spoke to her in her prison cell. And in no uncertain terms, communicated that he was there with her every moment of every day. And that she should be not fearful, but confident that his hand was upon her life. And be able and willing to share and minister to the people there as well. And you can imagine, (laughs) this pretty dramatically changed her attitude about being in prison. I mean, just like the Apostle Paul, similar situation, Acts 22.11. And she was able to boldly proclaim... Her faith of Christ, and which didn't go over very well with her captors and the jailers and the authorities there, they were like tried to shut her up, and she said, "Hey, so what I do when I'm outside? I preach the gospel. You put me in jail, so what I do?" And she was very bold about her faith in Christ. She has since been released from prison and actually is in another country. And in listening to her testimony, she shared that she her heart's desire is that she wants to go back and finish her calling and she doesn't mean to go back to that country. She means she wants to go back to jail to finish God's calling. And she's got a big smile on her face. Obviously, this woman needs psychotherapy. (laughs) Let me suggest to you that joy is not dependent upon our circumstances, but Our joy is dependent upon our attachment, our communion, our fellowship, our koinonia to the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 1611 says, You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Thank you, Lord, when we are with the Lord. John's witness from God in verses 5, 6, and 7. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the message we have heard from him. John sort of synthesizes down from all his years of ministry, from all his ex- from walking with Jesus. This is the message we've heard from him. The first thing God does for those that he shares his communion and his his oneness with, is he communicates. God communicates, folks. You're having trouble, and you don't know why. Ask the Lord. He knows. He knows why you're having a difficult time. Now, if he doesn't want to tell you, that's a different matter. But ask, and keep on asking. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open." Now, either that's the word of God from the Bible, or it's not. And if it's the word of God and if you ask and you keep on asking and you seek and you keep on seeking and you knock and you continue to knock, the Lord says he will reveal it to you. And what is it that he wants us to know? He wants us to know his attributes. He wants us to know his character. He wants us to know his testimony. He wants us to know his word. He wants us to know him personally. And the message John received for us is God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does the Lord want us to take away from this? The idea God is light its a metaphor. And what we get from that, first of all, in the Greek language, Greek being very different than the English language, this, this is not reversible. You can't say God is light. And light is God. doesn't work that way. The way that it is played out in the Greek language makes it a totally one-way statement. It can only work in this order. Very similar to what's said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, God is light. You cannot say, light is God. Or at least if you do, you can't take it from that scripture because the Greek language is so specific, it only goes one direction. Light, in verse 5, is used throughout the scripture... As a picture of purity, perfection, righteousness, holiness. God is all of those things and is completely uncorrupted and without compromise. There is no end justifies the means. There is no lesser of two evils. There is no reverse psychology. There is only truth. And Jesus is that truth. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In John nine, five he says, As long as I am in the world I am the light of the world. In John rather Ephesians chapter five and verse eight it says that we should walk as children of light. And in James one seventeen it calls the Father the Father of Lights. It's almost like it was the whole book was written by one person. It's an amazing coincidence. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And all, as for those who are connected, or maybe those who claim to be connected to Him, that leaves us with two alternatives. In verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this is a tough verse because, I, I mean, I hate to tell you, but there is. Way more darkness in the best of us than I would like. How blessed we are to know that the Lord has engineered a situation to clean us up, to really to remake us in the image of Jesus. And only he could do it. Thank you, Lord, that he has. Now, do you say that you have fellowship with him? I do. I say that. I'm not going to say anything different. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. I have fellowship with Jesus. The 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 phrase at issue here is what he says when he says walk in darkness. If you say you have fellowship with him and you walk in darkness. Walking is an interesting illustration of the human condition. Progressive, consistent. And the idea here is that walking is indicative of a lifestyle. He reinforces it at the end of the verse we lie and do not practice the truth. What you practice in your life, that's your lifestyle. You walk in darkness, you're not practicing the truth. The practice of your life is the way you live. I say, you know, doctors practice. Someday they're going to get it right. So to say, I have fellowship with the Lord and to walk in darkness is not to practice the truth. It makes me a liar. Well, you know, okay, um, how many times can I sin in a week and not be walking in darkness? Wrong question. Wrong question. You know, can I have one foot in the world and still be saved? Wrong question. Move, change of mind. You need some brainwashing. There are a lot of things in your life, folks, that you can play fast and loose with, where you have a reasonable margin of error, You know, something goes haywire. Hey, you can come back next week, straighten it out. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is not one of those things. You don't know if you're going to be here next week. You do not know if you're going to be here tomorrow to come back and straighten anything out. There are a whole lot of doors in your life and, and, you know, you can walk through them and many of them are not well labeled. They don't have red flags or flashing red lights and From a lot of those doors, there is no exit. You can make a decision in a matter of minutes that can impact your eternity, forever. There's a warning, a warning for us, actually, in Hebrews chapter 12, speaking about Esau, the brother of Jacob. It says, you know that afterwards, when he wanted to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Justification by faith is what you believe. It's what the Bible teaches. You are saved because you believe Christ died for you on the cross. It's not a mark on your arm that you can show somebody. You no, know, I've been stamped. You've got to let me in. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. When people begin to practice a lifestyle of sin, it affects them physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And people who practice a lifestyle contrary to the Word of God, folks, let me share with you, they are rapidly going to find themselves in a place where they no longer believe that the death of Christ on the cross covered them. I worked with a guy many years ago. He spoke Spanish all the time. And I learned, Jesus por ti." Jesus died for you. And his response to that was always the same. No, 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 no. Jesus no not die for me. And it used to grieve me when he would say that. I said, don't, don't ever say that. Don't ever say that. Jesus died for you. And because he died for you, and because you know he died for the forgiveness of your sins. When a person arrives at a place in their life where they no longer believe that Christ's death covered their sins, they're in a lot of trouble. Does that mean they can't be saved? No, I can't say that. God can do amazing things. But it's a very scary place. And there are a lot of people out there, a lot of people who come out of churches, who find themselves in that situation. As a follower of Jesus, folks, there is only one place that I want to be walking, and that's verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, He who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. How do we walk? We walk like Jesus walked. Notice, at the end of verse 7, we still sin, don't we? We still fail. We still make mistakes. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We still need to be cleansed. We walk with God. Then we have fellowship. We have communion, connection with one another. And notice, we have connection not with him, we have fellowship with one another. And although we do have connection with him as well, we walk in the light, we are connected with one another. Kind of reminds us back to the gospel of John chapter 13, verse 35, where Jesus said, by this all will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Isn't that interesting? Instead of making the identifying factor of a believer in Christ, the fact that they love God. I know that guy's a Christian. He loves God so much. No, no. By this will all men know that you're my disciple because you love other Christians. That's harder than loving God. <laughs> I can love God. He never did anything mean to me. He never mistreated me. He never didn't invite me to his house. He never called me names behind my back and denied it. God never did that. But these other Christians... Oh. Hey, you hear people say things around the church like, are you going to get somebody to work on your house? Oh, so good. Hire somebody. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, just Don't hire a Christian. What? That's What a terrible thing to say. But you know, when you hire Christians, you're going to have bad experience. Well, if you hire people in the world, you're going to have a bad experience too. It's like, you know you have a bad experience with a dentist, you don't give up on dentistry. That's it. Never going back. No, you just go out and find a good dentist. God help us. We're full of, world full of crazy people. So we see the connection between our relationship with Christ and our ability to love these people. God intends us to have for other believers around us. There are two relationships, folks. The vertical relationship between us and God facilitates the horizontal. Unless my relationship with God is happening, I can't love you the way that I'm supposed to. I can't love other people the way that I'm supposed to. The Lord intends that our relationships together would rest upon this foundation of our relationship with Him. And we should follow that pattern. Love for man must be initiated by love from God and preceded by love for God. So we need to be connected to God in the most practical way, in His Word, in the church, in service, in prayer. I know that there are lots of people in churches that their connection to the Lord is very sporadic. Like they go to church on Sunday. I mean, for a lot of people out there, go to church a few times a year. And you know, you don't want to be legalistic with people. Oh, you got to go to church all the time. Now you need to be involved in serving the Lord. You need to be. But you know what? You would think that people would see in themselves the need to be attached. Apart from the Lord, there is no real affection, folks. Apart from the life of God, all other forms of affection, regardless of how we market them or identify them or what we call them, they are more or less self-seeking. I mean, I love you so much because you really make me feel good. Have you noticed that the favorite people in your life are people who just think you're wonderful? And they are the favorite people. I just love them. They think I'm so great. Figure that out. Put that together. Whatever else it is, if it's not predicated on God's hand upon our lives, it's self-interest. And self-interest is the enemy of all true affection. So as we walk in light, walk in the light, Ephesians 5.2 says we walk in love. Galatians 5.16 says we need to walk in the spirit. Romans 6.4 says that we should walk in the newness of life. Romans 13.13 tells us to walk properly as in the day. Colossians 1.10 tells us to walk worthy. Proverbs 2.7 says that he is a shield to those who walk uprightly. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, walk by faith, not by sight. Colossians 2, 6 says that we walk in him, one with him, in him. And John's witness to men in verses 8, 9, and 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And his truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we, we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's interesting here that sandwiched in between verse 8 and verse 10 is this, this verse exhorting us to honesty about who we, who we really are. It's really a, our get out of jail free card. Verse 9... God's simple plan to take away this millstone of death and destruction that's hung about our collective necks for as long as our history can remember. And what do we have to do? What do we have to do to receive this from the Lord? What amazing task are we required to perform? What miracle should we do to receive God's understanding and grace and forgiveness? We have to agree with God. That's what it says. If we confess. The word confess there is the Greek word homologo. It's a compound word. The first part is homo, same as. Homogeneous, same as. The second part is logo. From John 1, 1. Word. It's same word. To agree with. To say the same thing is another. To agree with, assent, to concede. Not to refuse, to promise, not to deny, to confess, to declare, to confess, admit or declare oneself guilty of what one is accused. Now, may say, sound strange to you to say this. People don't want to do this. Not that they don't want to agree with God if they happen to believe in God at all. People have this ingrained religious idea in them that somehow they need to establish their own goodness. If nothing else, to try and make a good showing of it before other people and before God, they want to prove that they are worthy in some way. Like the Jewish people, Paul says in Romans 10.3, they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So they don't agree with God about how rotten they are. Somebody once described this to me as trying to lift yourself off the ground by pulling your hair. Crazy as it sounds, the last thing your run-of-the-mill, good moral pagan usually wants to do is agree that they are a sinner. You walk up to somebody out, I know your family member or somebody, say, well, you know you're a sinner. You get that. A sinner. They don't understand. They really, And you have to take some time to walk them through the details and help them get a handle. You usually know that you're getting close to the idea when they say something like, well, now wait a minute, wait a minute. If what you're saying is true, then everybody in the world deserves to go to hell. Yes, 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 yes. That's it. You've got it now. And then they understand. Second part of verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. If we agree from all unright, he is faithful. Will he do it? He is faithful and just. Well, is he bending the rules though? Is he like kind of fudging a little bit in order to get us? No, he is. It is the right thing for him to do. He is just, it is the just right thing for him to do because Jesus died for you on the cross. It is absolutely the right thing for him to do. Well, and what will he do? Forgive our sins. So, okay, so anything we've done unintentionally or accidentally, things that are not malicious, he will forgive. But that's not what it says, is it? Look at the end of the verse. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Underline that somewhere, somehow. Memorize it. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Folks, I talk to people regularly, a lot of new believers. People who've just accepted the Lord and they come into my office, they're sweating and they're upset and they're like, I've I've done it now, I've done it now. Because for the first time in their life, they understand what sin is about. As a non-believer, you're out there lighting the world on fire. You don't care. You know, what? God, who, what? You don't know. You become a believer. God speaks to you all of a sudden. I sinned. I have sinned. You know, you know. They come into my office and I say, what's the problem? I sinned. I said, yeah, well, you know, the Lord Lord knows you're going to sin. But... I did it on purpose. I sinned on purpose. Okay, all right. come down, come on. If the only people who go to heaven are people who don't sin on purpose, Jesus is going to be very lonely. Is it, is it a big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. It is a big deal. But he has promised to forgive us. And you know that way you feel inside when you have sinned intentionally against the Lord, the way it just grieves you and hurts you, and pains you. That's part of the process. That's God's way of speaking to you and showing you. You need to be one with him. Ephesians 5.27 says that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Because we are so good? No. Because we are so agreed. Because we agree with him. Because we are so attached to the truth, because we are with him, because we are his own. Verse 8 and 10, interestingly, deal with the denial aspect in an interesting way. It kind of escalates this denial. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Okay, so back in verse 6, we're just liars separated because of the nature of the lie, but simple liars, like we all are. In verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Okay, it gets a little thicker. So in verse 8, denying our sin, we lie to ourselves. Okay, lying is sin against God. That is, well, I mean, Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. Listen to this. The cowardly and unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. That's the icing on the cake right there. All liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And you are a liar, aren't you? Remember, agree with God. You are a liar. Lying, folks is one thing, but lying to yourself is much worse. More than anything else, lying to yourselves put people in a place where they cannot agree with God. It was an accident. It It was an accident. I didn't mean to. It was a misunderstanding. I got stuck in traffic. I'd been drinking. I missed my medication. My phone was dead. It was my twin brother. I didn't mean it. And people persuade themselves that these things are true. If you tell yourself a lie long enough, you will believe it. What did did Jesus say in the gospel of John chapter 9, speaking to the religious leaders? He said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. These men lying to themselves pretending, playing this game, that they were really righteous in the sight of God. And they knew they were not. They knew that they were sinners. And they would not admit it. They would not agree with God. When you take responsibility, take responsibility. Take it. My experience with people and difficulties with people demonstrates pretty clearly that in the problems between individuals, There is always enough responsibility to go around. 50, 50, 60, 40, 80, 20, it's like motor oil, whatever you need. When I lie, I am part of the problem. When I lie to myself, I'm burning my house down. I'm burning down my house. I'm cutting the lines of any productive communication. I am basically adrift without the truth without any kind of fixed point of reference. And in verse 10, it gets worse. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. It's one thing to lie and be separated from God. Another thing to lie to myself to that same end. But whatever I do, I never want my actions to be an accusation against the character of God, making him a liar. I mean, there is ignorant and then there is foolish and then there is light your hair on fire and watch it burn. The people of our world, by and large, folks, I don't know if you've noticed this, but they have no fear of God. They say and do things that appear in the presence of the Lord in the most objectionable and disgraceful way. And they laugh about it. They laugh publicly and find it amusing to insult the spirit of the grace of God. And they have no real concept of the terrible cost. We have no real concept of the terrible cost that God has suffered to himself to free us and to free these people and their children and their loved ones from the world of death. Second Corinthians 4.4 says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God should shine on them. God, help us to remember who we are and to remember who we were. I didn't fix myself. I don't get the credit. And all these other people in the world, all these rotten and twisted people, and they are evil. These are the people that Jesus died for. These are the people he died for. And you want to follow his example. You've got to ask yourself, what would he do for these people? How would he serve these people who insult the spirit of grace? What wouldn't he do? John's witness to the word of life. John's witness to joy. John's witness from the Lord. John's witness to men. We have great opportunities in the next couple of weeks, next few weeks through December, to spend time with loved ones and family members and folks. There's plenty of good reason to believe that this may be our last opportunity to talk to people about the love that God holds for them. And we need to... We need to take advantage of every opportunity that the Lord gives us. And I think a really good idea for us to begin praying in advance of Thursday and Christmas and all the rest, that God would anoint us with his spirit, that even if he does not lead us to say a single word, that our lives would speak to people. You know, Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And that's what we want, first and foremost. But if we have a chance to speak, God, you direct our words. You speak through us. May the Lord use our witness in a way that honors his name. And just in case you're wondering, that's why we're here. That's why we're still here. Thank you, Lord. Father, we thank you for being here with us this morning, for your word and, Lord, your spirit that breathes life into us and Lord, gives us understanding of your truth. And Father, our prayer this morning is that your spirit would work your truth in us and through us. And Father, your words would, Lord, resurface in our memories throughout the week. Lord, prepare us for the opportunities. Lord, let us not be unarmed against, Father, the warfare that we are entrenched in, Lord, but be a blessing and encouragement to our brothers and sisters. And Father... We don't deserve your goodness, Lord. Why should we expect that of other people? Help us to be a blessing, Father, to, Lord, look for open doors to love and to care for the people that even rub us the wrong way, Lord. We love you. We love you and we thank you. And, Lord, we believe that you could do a miracle like that. As we're all praying together, if there's one person here today that doesn't know Christ As your personal Lord and Savior, you've never given your life to Christ in a prayer or publicly confessed faith in Christ. We want to give you an opportunity today if you're here in the sanctuary or watching in the overflow room in the fellowship hall or even over the Internet. If this morning you want to join your life, you want to be one with Jesus Christ for his spirit to be in you and to change you and to give you a new life to change your life. He can do that today and I'm going to pray a prayer and ask you to pray after me. Repeat these words because God is listening. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I want to ask you to forgive me for all the sins of my life, everything I've ever done. I believe that Christ died for me on the cross. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe that you can change my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, save me. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning,